This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey, this is Morgan. Thank you to everyone who has left a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. If you would still like to get the special edition episode with myself and Mark when we answer all of your guys' questions, please, please, please leave us a review between today and next week, Friday. If we get 50 responses, which right now we're about 30 responses away, yes, we will tape our special podcast answering whatever question you like if you leave it in your Apple podcast review. So please do that. And thank you to everyone for all your kind words and support of the show. Thanks. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm joined by Ted Olson. Also, I'm Morgan Lee. Apologies to anyone who didn't recognize my voice already. But hey, Ted, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Uh, it's nice to sit in for Mark again. So, you know, it's always nice when he goes out of town. I, I encourage him to go out of town on these uh, taping, uh, taping the podcast days because always fun to be here and chat current events with you. Yes, and you'll be here next week as well. I will. Ted, who is also chatting with us about current events this week? We're joined today by Bart Barber. Uh, Bart Barber is the pastor of First Baptist Church in Farmersville, Texas. He also has a PhD in uh, church history from Southwestern Seminary, and he has a fantastic uh, article uh, on our uh, website right now called A Small Rural Church is Hard to Kill, which he wrote uh, in response uh, to uh, Sunday's uh, mass shooting. Uh, Really great piece. Uh, Really glad we ran it, and uh, we were not done uh, hearing from him. We wanted to hear more from him, so that's why we invited him on our podcast today. Hey, Bart, how are you? I'm doing great, Morgan. It's good to be visiting with you again. I know. I honestly feel like it has not been four years. I think it was four years since we met. I'm really pumped that we're talking again, partially because I feel like you and I chat on Twitter a decent amount, but this is great. Where did you guys meet? Uh, we actually, we met in Nashville at a, at an event that the ERLC was hosting oh, that nice. I've spoken at. And neither of our baseball teams are doing well this year, so... Um, <laughs> So we've commiserated over that. We talked a lot about civil religion in this interview, and then we commiserated about baseball at the end. So it was a very perfect conversation in my book. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today again, Bart. So let's get into the show. Just six weeks ago, we recorded Quick to Listen in the wake of the deadliest mass shooting committed by one person in the United States. This week, we're a couple of days removed from the worst mass shooting ever on church property. In fact, six of the worst mass shootings in American history have happened in the past 15 years. Increasingly, these shootings have sparked furious debate over guns, with many Americans calling for increased regulations and laws, while others have pointed toward the futility of these measures, attacked these arguments as anti-Second Amendment, or pointed out how guns save lives. And this most recent attack, an armed civilian took down the killer. Well, the Second Amendment, as part of the U.S.'s Bill of Rights, goes back as far as the Constitution. Many Americans don't know the history of their country's relationship with guns over the past 250 years. Today on the show, we'd like to fill in the gaps of this history and especially understand the role that faith has played in understanding our country's beliefs on guns. I'm really excited to talk about this all today. But before we get into the discussion... 
I just want to thank and remind everyone, thank everyone who subscribes and remind everyone who doesn't subscribe that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes. So thank you so much to all our subscribers. One interesting thing that you get as a subscriber to CT is access to all of our archives. And this is the time of the year that I think this component of your subscription really comes in handy because we are about to head into holiday season and there's plenty of religious connections to Thanksgiving. And of course, Christmas is a holiday that we celebrate precisely because of our faith. But we also have a lot of historical content to go with that. Last year, we really promoted a lot of different stuff that we had in there. And it gave me the chance to read through this content. And I have to say, it just tells you all these different things that you'd never knew about what being a Christian is like through the centuries. And I'm so happy that we have this treasure trove of stuff. Also, this is a little bit of alert to something else we have on CT right now. Ted, take it away. Uh, yeah, this week we are launching a new uh, column, a uh, bi-weekly column by our editor-in-chief, Mark Galley, who you usually hear on this podcast, called Evangelical Distinctives. So a lot of questions right now about what does it mean to be an evangelical? Uh, who, Is Mark going to clear this up for us? He has he has views, uh, kind of speaking for CT on this. And it's going to be looking at it not just by, through doctrine, but also through history, even kind of sociologically. Uh, what does it mean when we say uh, evangelical? Really good introductory piece this week that you can find on ChristianityToday.com. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, later on, catching up on old quick-to-listen episodes, uh, you can just find that by uh, searching our site for evangelical distinctives. Awesome. So to become a subscriber, to access our archives, to get our magazine, you can do that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you again to all our subscribers. Ted, as you know, and this is the prime of the show where we ask both of us to give our initial reactions. So I would appreciate if you could just share with our listeners what your gut check was to this specific attack. Uh, yeah, I mean, what can your gut check be uh, when you get the uh, you know pop up alerts on your on your phone, uh, except for ugh, uh, you know, and and sadness and uh, a bit of uh, weariness uh, at uh, the world on on days like this. And murder and killing and evil uh, are uh, are always new, uh, rarely surprising, but always uh, uh, deeply sad. So for me, you know, with the job I have at CT, it was, you know, I don't know what we're going to say about this because these are happening so often now. And, you know, church shootings, unfortunately, also, we, you know, uh, we've been covering a lot. Uh, and uh, there's a there's just a weariness uh, to it sometimes, the weariness of, of, of evil, even, even as this one was, you know, bigger. Uh, the biggest one, as you said. But yeah, it's sad and and tiring. I didn't hear about the news until about seven or eight hours after it happened, which means that it was actually a Sunday and I actually could step away from the news for a bit. And I totally resonate with what you were saying about weariness. I would say that I had the least visceral reaction I've had to something in a long time. And I'm not really surprised because I was already really upset about the terrorist attack that happened last week. And yeah, I had exhausted a lot of emotional energy after the Las Vegas shooting. So I am sad that I could not feel more than that was also very tired. Yeah, this is one of those stories where you see the alert and you go, oh, again, oh my gosh. And it's not until you kind of read the details and you 
are reminded that these are you know individual people with these stories and the the you know it's the details that are particularly horrific that kind of shake you up and go and make you angry again and make you upset again you know just being at ct you know how do we report some of these stories you know recognizing the you know the 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 big deal of the individuals and the people affected uh beyond just kind of the the kind of issues that it raises or the kind of uh looking at them as a series of you know shootings that are happening in the country that's always a trick is to to keep the human in the in the trend story Agreed. That is the tension when it comes to this type of stuff. I do think that looking at our history, though, is important for context. And that's why I'm really glad that we're going to be diving into this today. So, Bart, let's start at the beginning for this podcast. Can you just tell us a little bit about where the Second Amendment came from? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And and, uh, counterintuitively, in some ways, it came from Quakers in Pennsylvania, uh, Quakers uh, pacifist group, and Pennsylvania uh, was one of the uh, holdout colonies that uh, that did not actually have uh, a militia like some of the others did. But when the French and Indian War came to the frontier in the colonial era, there uh, Pennsylvania, of course, not entirely populated by Quakers. There were a lot of Scots-Irish folks who had moved into that area as well. And um, the people who were not pacifists found themselves defending uh, everyone else in the village as well, uh, and without any kind of organization, because the state refrained from creating any kind of a militia. And so it was in uh, 1776, Pennsylvania uh, drafted a constitution that codified a right of people to bear arms for the protection of themselves and for the protection of the state. And um, that language that that, uh, comes all the way back from trying to resolve this tension, uh, this religious faith tension between pacifists and non-pacifists in in a violent and difficult time, winds up being picked up to some degree uh, when the Second Amendment is written into the federal constitution. So help me make sure that I understand this. In order for groups like the Quakers to practice their pacifism, they relied on others to be able to use their weapons. Yes, and and the others, because the, the administration, the state was Quaker, they didn't want to give state-level organization to a response. It wasn't a coordinated response. It was just individuals within these communities trying to defend everyone else. And sometimes... Quakers who were traveling would uh, they they would own firearms for 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 hunting or for defense of their livestock from predators or things like that. Sometimes they would take their firearms that they used for other means and they would travel with a non-Quaker friend and give their firearm to someone else to defend them as they were uh, if they encountered hostile people uh, as a part of the French and Indian War. So the non-Quaker population of Pennsylvania pushed for some sort of an organized response from the state because um, because protection in war needs more than just people running out of their homes with guns. There needs to be some sort of a some sort of an organization in place to help them to to defend a village well. So Pennsylvania wound up drafting a, a, a proto Second Amendment first because they had the most tension over these questions. Uh, in their state. It almost seems that it was, like it was a religious freedom issue in some ways. Absolutely. Conscientious objection, of course, uh, the, the religious idea of conscientious objection is tied closely to war and violence and guns. And the movie Heartbreak Ridge that came out uh, just recently, talking about Desmond Doss and, and before that, Alvin York, 
uh, who was uh, part of the Churches of Christ and Christian Union denomination. People have struggled for a long time, going all the way back to the Quakers, uh, with this concept of, of uh, violence and guns and, and what's the appropriate role for a Christian to take in using them. Uh, and so when the federal government came together, uh, they wanted to make sure to to protect this right for people to own firearms. Obviously, uh, the uh, the American Revolution had started with a British uh, a British inif- initiative to confiscate arms that had been gathered by Massachusetts uh, colonials, and so. Uh, they borrowed this language from Pennsylvania in order to protect that right. Was there any type of controversy when it came to it being adopted in the Bill of Rights? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, the the presence of pacifist groups uh, within the country has been there from the beginning. You know, we have from in the in the initial DNA of our country, we have we have groups like the Quakers on the one end who are pacifists, and then uh, on the far other end, uh, Anglicans who at that time favored a full church-state fusion and, and, and government enforcement at the point of a gun of, of theological uniformity. And that's going to create that's going to create tension. And in the adoption of the Second Amendment, you have you have some debates over how to word it. They're not the same as the debates that we have today, because we're not we're not seeking to defend a land frontier uh, against again we we own pretty much from from ocean to ocean right so uh, and our our generally the average American doesn't fear invasion by land uh, very frequently. And so we have a different set of concerns. We have different debates today about the Second Amendment, but but certainly there was some faith-based dialogue and, and debate about the uh, Second Amendment from the beginning. Yeah, one thing in reading up uh, on this, I, I was surprised to learn that uh, you know gun ownership was uh, not as prominent colonial era as, as I had as I had expected that the you know hunting was not often done uh, with a with a firearm and that uh, in a number of cases there were you know in Virginia I read that there was only one musket for every you know four men you know I, I kind of viewed uh, America as being uh, very uh, gun oriented early on but I guess it wasn't until you know later on with uh, more of an industrial you know production and a little bit more uh, of a wealthier country that you had uh, more affordability of, of guns and multiple guns uh, in, a, in, a, in a family. Absolutely. It was expensive, and so much so that sometimes governments were in the position of trying to beg people to own guns. So Georgia, for example, adopted a statute uh, encouraging... So at that time, uh, this is in the middle of, of slavery. Georgia is concerned about slave uprising. And so there's actually a Georgia law that was adopted to oblige white males to carry firearms to worship, into into worship services. So uh, you do have occasions where the government is trying to say to people, why don't you own a gun? It's your civic duty uh, to own one and to and to protect the populace. Fascinating. When we were having this discussion, I was trying to just think about behaviors of what people did with guns. You had mentioned earlier, right, that people would use it to protect their livestock. But one thing that I did remember is that Hamilton obviously dies in a duel, and that is with a gun, which is a Again, a piece of technology that enables this type of duel to start, and you know his son dies as well. Was there any type of backlash that you're aware of that happened as a result of these duels that <laughs> killed off prominent Americans? Wow, what a great question! And um, I'm going to violate the unwritten rules of holding a PhD and say I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. <laughs> not ever supposed to admit to that. 
All right. If a listener knows, please tell me. I'm very curious. Yeah, I know that there was a backlash to this idea of duels, and that there were a number of you know religious sure. leaders who but thought that, like, yeah, but whether yeah, whether whether, whether that, that was, was a, translated to a backlash against firearm ownership or exactly anything like that, I, right. I haven't seen that. I could just imagine someone saying that duels would not be able to occur unless you had firearms. Well, no, they dueled with swords back in the day, right? But people didn't die, like, whatever. They didn't? Sure they did. Well, sure. Sure they did. <laughs> Was that the point, so, though? I guess, I, guess I, I guess I'm just thinking of that because... The impression that I got from some of these duels was that it was just kind of to settle something. No one was supposed to actually die. The dying part was an accident. That's not how I understand it, but I, I'm not an expert in that in that world. But Okay, whatever. I'll not use the lyrics of Hamilton to inform when I think about duels. All right, so <laughs> as the 19th century wore on, you know, the United States obviously fought a lot more wars, War of 1812, Civil War. Did you see any of those wars as having an influence in how Americans thought about guns or did that was that a separate thing that happened you have to def- divide america after you get past the uh the 18th century you have to divide america into frontier america and then into sort of civilized america if you will uh, back on the eastern seaboard guns were just a part of the fabric of life for people who lived out on the frontier and they could separate problems with violence from problems with guns. So what you see is a, a move toward, for example, in, in the in the burgeoning temperance movement, and then and then later on in prohibition, a reaction to violence, sometimes involving guns, that would say, well, you know, the problem is people drink too much, and when they and when they get drunk, then they do bad things with their guns, or uh, they do bad things with their fists, uh, they do bad things in their homes, or or downtown in the city square. So people would see the same phenomena, and if there was a war, they would blame politics. And if there was a domestic situation, they would blame alcohol or they would blame a lack of education or they would or they would blame some other problem. But the tendency to look at um, to look at a, at, a, at, a, at a gun and say, what we really need is to do something against the, the instruments of this kind of violence. That's not something that appears really until the 20th century. The, the very first attempt by the federal government to, to, to solve gun violence problems by legislation happens in the 20th century. Did that come after a technological advance in how guns function? Well, in 1934, uh, FDR led the, the first effort to have some federal gun control. And uh, really, uh, it is in some ways a development that comes after Machine guns become more popular, but I spoke a minute ago about about the temperance movement and prohibition. Really, prohibition was the uh, historical event that led to the beginning of gun control legislation in the United States. Because when prohibition passed, this is something that dramatically increased the visibility of organized crime. Uh, in the United States. And so you have things like the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You have uh, uh, all, sorts of, uh, all sorts of news reports about, about Al Capone and, uh, and Bonnie and Clyde. And so it's not, uh, it's not warfare, it's crime, really, that gets the attention of the American population. And these, these gangsters are carrying Tommy guns and they're filling rooms with bloody corpses uh, in just a few moments and terrorizing the population. And so uh, in response to that, Congress uh, passes a law and, and FDR signs it into law that does what a lot of people talk about today. It, it, uh, it tries to look at kinds of weapons and identify 
specific kinds of weapons that are problematic. So the length of a shotgun barrel uh, determines whether it falls under this law or not, or the ability to conceal the weapon. If you, if you create a weapon that can be concealed, there's an additional tax that's imposed, and then later uh, a registration of, of sellers that takes place. And so, and so it's, it's because, of, because of demon rum and prohibition and all of that that the American population starts to think differently about guns. One of the things that I think of when it comes to prohibition is the influence of Christians in trying to push for this. You know, after we saw a spike in crime as a country during that time, did Christians at all react to that type of crime or have any thoughts about guns or were they sitting at the table with FDR when he decided to sign this legislation? Yeah, you do. You do have a, a reaction, much like what you guys were talking about earlier with what happened in Sutherland Springs uh, Sunday. People people reacted with horror to the initial reports of, uh, of organized crime and gun crime in the cities. And then that, that, that moved into a, a sort of despair and and fatigue and so you do see uh, you do see sermons about kind of the degeneration of uh, of, of society into this spiral of violence and uh, and and some papers written by by Christian academics decrying all of that it doesn't necessarily bring people to the point Morgan where they're saying well you know what uh, our our push for prohibition was a bad thing because it's created all this violence uh, but it brings them to the point where they're not really ready to fight to keep it the way they were fighting to to bring it to bear it's a law of unintended consequences thing really for them they they believed that they were going to reduce violence mm-hmm. by by bringing prohibition of, of alcohol into the United States. And, and, and then they saw violence spike and become much more notorious uh, after they achieved this goal. And, and so then the wind goes out of their sails, uh, if you will. They talk about the violence, and then they don't oppose the end of prohibition nearly as much. And they don't oppose things like this uh, national firearms law in 1934. I would take it that that also is as you're having increased urbanization, uh, you have, uh, you know, you still see kind of an east-west uh, or, or north-south gap a little bit. Folks in urban areas being less uh, enthusiastic about gun ownership uh, than folks who are in more of a hunting culture and that kind of thing. And I would think that as you have gun violence manifesting itself in, in cities under prohibition, which, you know, is certainly more common in the cities than it would have been in rural areas, that that would have uh, that would have changed that the the discussion between rural and urban areas in those twenties as well. Absolutely, you know, there's been a contrast drawn between what historians call agrarian values versus sort of an urban professional set of values, and you even see this in uh, in church leadership and in preachers. Very common in the mid to late 1800s. That, that you had gun-toting preachers who were uh, sort of these frontier kind of Jim Bozeman uh, wild men, you know, uh, uh, looked like they belonged uh, in the cast of The Revenant. Pre- I preached in a church in Arkansas. It was it's one of the oldest churches in Arkansas. And uh, they had the story of the church's founding up in a little poster that they had printed up that they'd put in the lobby of the church. It was a really small church in a, in a remote rural area of Arkansas. Uh, an itinerant revivalist had come 
come to that area. He'd gone around to the farm houses and had said that he was going to start religious services and try to plant a church. He built a brush arbor, came to the first night of meetings. Uh, they were there singing. A lot of people had come and upride these guys on horseback. And uh, they announced that we don't need no religion around here, you know, and, and that this preacher should pack up his things uh, for his own good and move out. And uh, he reaches into his pulpit and pulls out two six shooters and steps out of the brush arbor and dares them to make him move on. So these guys turn around on their horses and ride off and the preacher walks back to the pulpit. This time he doesn't put the six shooters in the pulpit. He puts them right on top and says, if there are any more interruptions, anybody else has any problems, you come see me about it. And then he continued to preach his message and went ahead and established that church. And so... (laughs) Uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it, this is this is not the way the church I pastor was founded. <laughs> but in that rough and tumble frontier environment, there there was a different set of values. These these agrarian values of self sufficiency, uh, sort of the idea that that in the absence of civilization and law and order, you make your own law and order. But by the time you get into the 20th century, preachers aren't like that anymore. And instead, they are increasingly becoming the social peers, not of not of the the trapper and the farmer, but the but the but the bank president and the superintendent of schools. And so there's a movement to a different set of values, these urban values, uh, rather than these agrarian values. And it changes uh, the way that, uh, that that churches and pastors interact with guns at that time sociologically inappropriate to uh, compare uh, one set of survey data to another set of survey data. Uh, but I was I was interested to see that the National Association of Evangelicals, you know, had a survey earlier this year where 58 percent of evangelical leaders, you know, pastors, parachurch leaders, other other folks, 58 percent said they live in a household that has a gun. That is higher. I was surprised too. Yeah. I mean, that's a majority from what I've looked at uh, other survey data. I haven't seen any survey where, you know, a majority of evangelicals uh, live in a household uh, that has a gun or, um, you know, evangelicals, uh, are slightly more likely from surveys I've seen. I saw one interesting report in the um, Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion um, that said, yes, uh, evangelicals somewhat more likely to uh, own a gun. Theologically conservative folks definitely more likely to own a gun. But actually, if you look at uh, religious involvement, so uh, going to church, uh, Bible reading, some of the high religious commitment stuff, that religious commitment actually uh, correlates to a lower likelihood likelihood of, of gun ownership, uh, even among uh, evangelicals and uh, theologically conservative folks. A Pew uh, Research Center came out with a report that said, you know, two out of five white evangelicals uh, own a gun. But even that included, you know, BB guns, uh, paintball guns, pellet guns. That would be a, a pretty high 40 percent. But, you know, a majority of evangelical leaders, 58 percent, uh, that that surprises me. So I wonder if I wonder if broadly that there may now be more association of evangelical leadership uh, with gun ownership than than in the pews. Well, I think I think that's quite possible. Uh, I think I think since the early 20th century, the the leadership of, in evangelical churches have reached a point where maybe there's a little more antipathy about their relationship with sort of these urban professional values 
versus the uh, agrarian values. And I think there's also been, there's tended to be over the course of evangelical history, the splitting up of this into sort of three different ethical domains. And that is, first of all, the question of war. That's uh, uh, a lot of the data that, that we get, not the sur- surveys you're talking about, which are contemporary, which are today. But to look historically, you have people who come down one position or, or the other about Christian participation in, in war or in, in the use of deadly force under the color of governmental authority, if you will. The Continental Anabaptists went so far as to say that uh, that Christians shouldn't even be a, a sheriff or a police officer or anything like that, uh, or even the, the mayor or the governor, because they should not be in a position either to use deadly force personally or to condone it or order it uh, on their own behalf by the use of others. And uh, and so you have this this idea of, of warfare and policing. And then you have the uh, kind of a separate ethical domain of self-defense. So uh, I know people who would say, I have no problem with the sheriff having a firearm. I have no problem with the sheriff using it uh, in order to preserve law and order. Uh, I would have no problem if, if I were called to do that and hired to do that, serving as a deputy sheriff and, and uh, and having that firearm in order to discharge that duty or to be a soldier. But I would not kill someone to defend myself because that seems to run contrary to, to, to some of the things that, uh, that Jesus said. So that, that idea of personal self-defense or home defense is sort of a separate ethical domain uh, sometimes for people. And then there's the idea of gun for sport. Uh, and so the idea of having a gun so that you can participate in target practice, shooting sports, or for hunting, uh, for people who do that. And so uh, evangelical leaders aren't poor anymore. And I think maybe there's a there's a degree to which uh, pastors and leaders of parachurch organizations, uh, A, have the means to participate in some of these sporting activities that maybe that, that are sometimes expensive to participate in, and maybe they're uh, more engaged in that sort of thing than are some of the people in the congregation. And then B, maybe tuned in a little more to a sort of conservative agrarian ethos that's trying to make kind of a resurgence, I think, in American society right now. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Guide. Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will me To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. It does seem that there's a, a slightly gendered conversation there as well, right? Uh, women were heavily involved in uh, the temperance movement, and also there was kind of a, a male drinking culture uh, in the same way that there's kind of a male uh, hunting or, or gun— the, Gun culture tends to definitely skew way male. Uh, you know, in Garland, Texas, on Interstate 30, uh, there's a large billboard for a pawn shop that sells a lot of guns, and it has uh, the silhouette of a 
ponytailed female uh, holding a gun, and it says something to the effect of, come on in, we promise we won't tell your husband how much you spent on buying a gun. There, there's an interesting marketing initiative to, to females for gun ownership that I think is recent. Now, let me, let me give you a little bit of full disclosure before I say this. Of course, I'm a pastor in Texas, a pastor of Texas in a small town. I was kind of a nerd and a bookworm growing up and uh, didn't spend a lot of time hunting, didn't uh, spend a lot of time shooting. But I have a 14-year-old son who's a Texas 4-H shooting sports ambassador. Uh, and so, uh, so I'm one of those evangelical leaders who lives in a home uh, with, with multiple firearms. I have grandmothers in my congregation every week carrying a firearm in, in, in their purse. And, and there, are, there are a lot of women who own firearms in this part of the world. I don't know about everywhere, but, but here, uh, that's a phenomenon. I think it would be more of a gendered conversation if so much domestic violence and abuse wasn't done with fists. And certainly, certainly, firearms are used in domestic violence. But I think the narrative, the kind of the meta-narrative here, is more about the husband who beats his wife than it is about the husband who shoots his wife. Mm, yeah. uh, we talk about, you know, what do they call the the uh, the white T-shirts? They call them wife beaters, right? So, uh, so that 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 narrative of of kind of pugilism instead of uh, instead of firearms. Uh, I think if if it were the other way around, if people immediately thought of gun use as something related to male violence against women, then uh, you might see more of a gendered conversation about it. But I don't think that narrative is the is the way usually that is cast. One of the guys we've been talking to uh, this week uh, in the wake of, of this week's shooting is is a sociologist at, at Wake Forest, uh, David Yamane, who talks about kind of gun culture 2.0, you know, what we have traditionally thought of as gun culture definitely has uh, its origins and its focus in um, hunting culture and also kind of in a uh, military preparedness uh, culture, uh, you know, National Rifle Association uh, having its kind of origins in uh, in World War One, World War Two. Uh, we weren't as good of marksmen as we as we could have been, and so let's have a, a rifle association that uh, improves kind of the uh, national preparedness. And he's saying, you know, in, in gun culture uh, 2.0, it's definitely much more in this kind of narrative of uh, self-protection in a era when uh, terrorism, uh, not feeling safe in our homes, crime, uh, some of these other issues that— um, a lot. The, the narrative now tends to be much more about personal protection uh, than in uh, uh, hunting, and that that is uh, driving a lot of kind of just the yeah you know, gun ownership, but also uh, you know, firearms training and that and that kind of thing. Are you finding that as well, even in kind of a, a, a rural context, even even as people are hunters? Uh, sure, sure. We our church hosts a semi-annual trap shoot kind of hunting thing with shotguns and it's we more men come to that than anything else i think so so there is some hunting connection to it but the women i know who uh, who carry a concealed weapon when you talk to them about it they'll say i know i'm not going to win a fist fight and uh if i'm going to protect myself uh, i'm going to need something like this and shootings in churches these mass shootings uh i've had several people uh in my congregation contact me this week and say how are we protecting ourselves? Concerned about about how our church uh, would be in a position to uh, save people's lives if something like this were to happen. And I think there's a sense that, you know, if you look at surveys, uh, you'll see that 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 
evangelicals, you know, there's some association there with gun ownership and a positive correlation between gun ownership and being a, an evangelical believer. I think there's a I think there's an increasing sense among evangelicals that the movement of culture is a momentum away from uh, the values that they have. And so uh, it makes people feel a little more beleaguered, makes people feel a little more like they like they need to protect themselves. And then I think there's also just in our politics today and in our culture today, an undercurrent of of protest and independence. And and all the way back since the since the days of of, uh, of Bill Cody and and whatever else, American independence has included the idea of uh, I have a firearm and I can defend myself, uh, whether it's from grizzly bears or from, you know, kind of first peoples, Native American tribes or or from, uh, you know, marauding bands of hoodlums or then these days from the from the mass shooter and tactical gear or from, uh, you know, with a lot of the fears people have about uh, about foreign uh, terrorism. Uh, to protect myself from from the mass terrorists. In a lot of these scenarios, the the fact that you could be armed and still would not have been able to protect yourself is utterly inconsequential. <laughs> uh, is just the uh, is just the idea that this uh, that this goes along with uh, uh, an ethos and an image of self protection. Both of you guys have talked about narrative and how that might have been changing. It seems like any conversation we're going to have, though, about guns and narrative, we have to talk about the NRA, which in many ways, even if it does not necessarily speak for all gun owners and how they see themselves, for people who don't own guns, I think a lot of times they look to the NRA to figure out how to define gun owners. So I guess my first question would be, is there a relationship between the NRA and Christianity here in our country? Um, I don't think there's a formal relationship between NRA and Christianity, but I think there definitely is one. Certainly, uh, evangelical Christianity and the NRA have both been dramatically involved with kind of Republican politics uh, over the course of, of my lifetime, sort of since the Ronald Reagan era, if you will. And then, you know, also as a part of that, to go back to the conversation that we had when we first met, uh, American civil religion, I think, features both an uh, incorporation of some elements of evangelical Christianity and some elements of kind of uh, NRA uh, gun ownership. So as far as a formal relationship goes, you know, I go every year to the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting. Uh, the NRA never has a booth there. <laughs> so uh, it's not, and I've never been to any Southern Baptist meeting, any evangelical meeting that was a faith-based meeting that was centered around preaching or or pastoral leadership or, or any of the items of the mission of the church, where you had any time on the platform for somebody from the NRA or anything like that. But when evangelicals get involved in politics, the NRA is involved in the same kind of politics that evangelicals are involved in. And... Um, and that makes for a lot of uh, a lot of relationships in that way. And then, hey, you walk through my parking lot on a Sunday morning, you're going to see a lot of NRA stickers on the back of pickup trucks. So there's uh, there's also the relationship that comes from just having a shared constituency. I am curious, uh, how as a pastor do you preach on to, on some of those uh, concerns about uh, safety? You know, you know, my background. I'm sure a number of our listeners uh, are going to be more in a, a rural uh, or in, familiar with gun culture. Me, I'm, I grew up very much suburban kid. Uh, my parents were very conservative. 
but uh, gun stuff always mystified them. Uh, they were like, I, you know, they grew up in more urban areas as well. They're like, I just, I don't get, I don't get love of guns. And so I, I grew up <laughs> way away from guns. So how, how as a pastor, you know, in this gun culture 2.0, where people are concerned about personal safety, do you talk about safety? Do you talk about um, trust? You know, uh, you know, for me, it's very easy to be like, oh, you know, uh, trust not in horses and trust not, <laughs> trust not in guns. You know, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you, why do you need a gun when you have Jesus? That kind of thing, which I'm sure to a, to an NRA member, you know, who is not at my church, but is a different church is going to say, dude, you just don't get it. Uh, how does concerns about safety play out in kind of spiritual life and discipleship? Well, I'm 47 and, um, I've been attending uh, weekly worship services in uh, in rural small churches since nine months before I was born. So uh, in all that time, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon that was primarily about about guns or about the role of guns in, in safety. I have. I have talked about and made application of that in a few different places. I preached through books of the Bible. I preached kind of exegetical uh, messages and not and not topically driven uh, sermons. And so, so for me, what it comes down to is saying, where is it while you're preaching through the Bible that you find texts that open up this conversation? You know, when we talk about kind of a, a classic text in an area where I wind up explaining this pretty frequently uh, is moving through the end of Romans 12, the beginning of Romans 13, where you have, I think, all the complexity of this topic unfolding in front of us. Uh, you have an absolute prohibition against taking your own vengeance. And uh, a lot of what happens, I think what happened in, in Sutherland Springs, uh, it appears perhaps, uh, had to do with a young man who was angry at his mother-in-law, angry at, at perhaps his ex-wife, angry maybe to some degree at their their faith convictions perhaps, and who marched off into church to, to settle that. So you have an absolute prohibition against that. In fact, a command uh, to, to love your enemies. <laughs> and Jesus told us that we're to love our enemies, that we're to pray for those uh, who persecute us. And you have uh, an absolute image of, of nonviolence in, in Jesus and in his uh, in, in the Passion Week and his move toward the cross. But then uh, in Romans 13, you also have a government bearing the sword, and you have uh, God who said, vengeance is mine, at the end of Romans 12, turning around and saying, but I have an agent of wrath, an avenger in human government that I'm authorizing to, to take some of these actions. And so when I hear people talk about this sort of thing here, and when you press people on the idea of trust in God, don't don't go around looking to shoot people, you know, love your enemies. What a lot of people will say is, well, I'm I'm not so much carrying a, a weapon. I mean, apart from the people who say, hey, dude, I'm a hunter. I'm not, uh, or I'm a I'm a sports shooter. I'm not I'm a target practice. I'm not I'm not looking to kill anybody. That's not why I have a gun. But for, for people who have one for self for self-defense or home defense or whatever, a lot of them will say, I wouldn't take anyone's life to save my own, but I would take someone's life in defense of others. And uh, that reaches all the way back to sort of that, that Pennsylvania Quaker conversation, doesn't it, about, uh, about the firearm as, a, as an altruistic means of giving safety to other people. So, so, so there, there will be people all over the country this week who will who will go to church Sunday carrying a concealed weapon, telling themselves, if this comes to my congregation, 
protecting my children is going to be more than just lying on top of them. If this comes to my congregation, the people who are sitting across the aisle from me in the pew, I'm going to do something to to try to save them. In the back of their minds, they may also be saying, and save me too. (laughs) But, uh, But this is the way that this is the way that the, that the theological conversation takes place, uh, from what I hear. People will acknowledge that they shouldn't kill somebody else just to save their own skin. A lot of people will when they're confronted with kind of the claims of the New Testament. Uh, but then they'll come back and take refuge in the defense of others. I'm sure that you're not oblivious to the fact that guns are one of the most polarizing issues that our country is facing right now. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering... What advice would you have for Christians who would like to constructively participate in this conversation? Where do you see the church being a helpful and potentially prophetic voice in this matter? Everybody ought to be able to to look and see, taking the facts of this week's situation, look and see uh, a fellow who had been convicted of uh, domestic abuse, uh, shocking, really, domestic abuse, uh, um, and who should not have been able to to buy a gun, who was able to buy a gun. And uh, I've not encountered anybody who would say, well, no, I would defend that man's right to, to own a gun. And so I think there's a place to find some unity where people who are kind of pro-Second Amendment and people who are kind of pro-gun control, although I realize those two things aren't necessarily entirely incompatible, but folks who have those those concerns can find some some uh, areas of agreement and uh, can say, you know what, this is uh, more money or more attention or, or something needs to be given uh, in order to try to make sure that people that we all agree should not be armed, aren't able to go buy firearms. And so finding those areas of unity to work in would be helpful, but going to have to be a huge de-escalation of rhetoric before that can happen. Uh, the, the, more that, uh, the more that people who are calling for legislation are mocking people who are calling for prayer, the less likely constructive dialogue is. And the more that people who are calling uh, for protection of the, of the Second Amendment bristle even at the idea of, uh, of taking these common step measures like we were just talking about, uh, the less likely it is, and, and the more often that they castigate these people as out-of-touch, unrealistic, uh, wild-eyed liberals, the less likely we are to have constructive conversation. And so to the degree that church leaders can encourage people to just tone down the rhetoric a little bit and have human conversation, uh, that's kind of a stock answer. I think I think we've got about 50 things going on in our culture that would benefit from that, and uh, this would be one of them. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. As a reminder, anyone who has feedback for us, you can give that to us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And just wanted to, again, put a plug out there that we always want to hear about the podcast that you're listening to as well. So if there's anything that you think deserves our attention or us being aware of, you can also send that to us on Twitter. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where I ask everyone to share something that's bringing them joy this week. Ted. So this weekend, I will be doing an escape room, uh, which I have not yet done. I've played a lot of board game versions of escape rooms, but I have not been in an actual physical escape room trying to figure out puzzles with my friends. So I'll be doing that uh, this weekend to celebrate uh, a friend's birthday. Looking forward to that and hoping that we 
we we get out in the allotted time. I did one for the first time a couple weeks ago. Did you have fun? It was okay. It was okay. All right. I thought it, it. some of these have more bells and whistles than others. Sure. Was it more or less fun than the card game escape rooms we've been playing? It was actually less lunch? fun. Oh. I think it partially has to do, those card game escape rooms that we've done, part of it has to do with the people that I'm That with. is a big. We have good group chemistry. Yeah. yeah. Good group chemistry. There you go. Cool. Are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson, although uh, when tragedy uh, happens, I tend to be a lot less on Twitter. I, uh, I get really tired of the uh, conversations and the, uh, and the outrage. So you can find me on Twitter, but don't expect me to tweet if there's been a national, uh, a national tragedy. Bart? Yeah, um, got a great opportunity this week. Our church has kind of an outdoor adventure program for boys and girls, and we're meeting uh, with our local uh, Army Corps of Engineers. There's a Corps of Engineers Lake here nearby, and uh, budget cuts have shut down a lot of the Corps of Engineer parks that are on the lake here uh, near our community. And so uh, our church in this program are meeting with the Corps of Engineers to see what we can do to help and to open up some of these parks. And uh, I'm uh, I don't know how to describe that in a way that makes it sound as exciting as it really is to me, uh, because uh, we're really, really looking forward to helping to open up those spaces and to get people out into uh, nature that God's created and to, uh, and to experience His glory there. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah, what a great partnership. Yeah, uh, we're, we're really pumped about it. Are, are you online at all? I am, yeah. Uh, so I'm uh, Twitter at Bart Barber. Uh, I think. Is it Dr. Bart Barber? No, it, it's uh, Bart it's Barber. It's Bart Barber. It's <laughs> at Bart Barber, yeah. Uh, you know, I never at myself, so <laughs> I have to, have to look and see. Uh, so I'm on Twitter at Bart Barber, and I, you know, I'm on Facebook and everything else, too, but Twitter's a great way to find me. Yeah, and definitely go online uh, to read uh, his article uh, on our website. My precious moment for this week was a conversation that I had with my uncle on the phone last night, and... It is very hard to get information about my extended family from my parents who listen to this podcast. <laughs> so I was really thankful that I could talk to my uncle. And we were talking about the fact that I have Mennonite ancestry and how that family apparently came through Ukraine after they had resettled in Ukraine when apparently whoever was in charge, the czar, I would imagine, made it possible for people to come and get land there, but before they had been a bit itinerant during that time. Anyway, I just, there's been various times where Mennonite things have come up in my life, whether it was the curriculum that we did for homeschooling, or it was the school that I went to, which is close to the eyes to the Mennonites. Then it's fascinating when you're like, this is part of my story in other more concrete ways, people I was related to. So I don't have all the details anymore right now, but it was still this interesting conversation to talk about that. And I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, Ted and Bart, for being here. This was a great conversation. I want to just remind all of our listeners that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today, to our magazine in particular. This podcast is produced by myself and Richard Clark and Cray Allred. As a reminder to everyone, please, please, please send your reviews to Apple Podcasts. That is the app that you must use if you're going to write the reviews, though our podcast is available almost everywhere that you can get your podcast from. We will see you all next week.